that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. That's always been in the Scriptures. That plan. And then he goes on to say, you are my witnesses of these, you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So now we turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1. Starting at verse 24 as we continue our series through Colossians. It's page 983 in that blue Bible. So we continue our series through Colossians getting on with the gospel. Not leaving the gospel behind. Not shoving it over in the storage bin somewhere. But getting on with the gospel. So just pick up right where we left off at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ for this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. What I've read to you from the Gospel of Luke and from Colossians is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, make crystal clear to us, Lord, the mystery that was hidden for ages. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Amen. You may be seated. So the sermon notes are on the back of the worship guide, and there's questions there for your care groups tonight. Hopefully you're able to plug into a care group if you're not already in one. So the term social justice, the term social justice is a mixed bag. Some people, probably several, many people maybe that you know, when they use the phrase social justice, mean a society that is fair and equitable, and that's legit. But more often than not, for most people who don't know the history of that term, it has a long history, who don't know the history of that term, Social justice is actually governed by the first word, social, in social justice. What society, in the moment, says is just. Now you may disagree with that, but that's fine. But in that light, social justice gave us the eugenics program of the early 1920s and 30s, where the social elites, Teddy Roosevelt the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, many scientists, and of course, the beginner of Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger, 
wanted to get rid of the undesirables and many African Americans and therefore forced sterilization on them in the name of social justice. Social justice is what gave us Jim Crow, a society that wanted that kind of segregation. Social justice gave us segregated American baseball. Until people like Jackie Robinson came along in 1947 and he pushed back against the social norms of right and wrong, especially the social norm of racially segregated baseball. And Jackie Robinson's experience was full of pressures and full of pains. The pressures and pains of bigotry and prejudice until he was finally accepted as belonging in some sense when he was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1962. But the pain and the pressure that he felt is not, that pain of prejudice and bigotry is not unique to American social forms of prejudice. It's been with us a mighty long time as humans. And that will all be important as we get deeper into the sermon. So just keep that in the back of your head. Now, now that Paul has worked his way through his heartfelt prayer in the very first part of chapter 1, and now that he has shown us the gospel grounding under our feet so we can get on with the gospel, he's beginning to move closer toward the details of what he is most concerned with. That'll be in chapters 2 and 3, but first he must describe what I'm going to call gospel grind. Verses 24 through 29, gospel grind. And you can see there's three points there. The first one is sufferings and struggles. And it's specifically verse 24 and then verses 28 through 29. Now, what I'm calling gospel grind is not grind like drudgery or doldrums or dragging along like some of you feel on occasion at work. Right? It is the thought of grind in the sense of labor-intensive. In fact, Paul's language is very clear that his gospel work was just that. Work. It's no cakewalk. It's not easy-peasy kind of stuff. I mean, listen again carefully to verse 24, and then we're going to jump down to verse 28 and 29. But in verse 24, my sufferings for your sake, Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body. Then you get to verse 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ for this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. You get it. Biblical gospel ministry has a grind to it. Callous-producing, sweat-causing laboriousness to it. In fact, it's very clear and lies very heavy behind the word Paul uses in verse 29. That very first, uh, uh, not the first word, but the word struggle. Um, For this I toil, struggling. That, as you know, the New Testament was written in Greek, and that Greek word behind it is agonizomenos. The tongue twisters in the Greek, I'm just going to tell you. Agonizomenos. It's an agony word. It's part of that family group that uses the word agony. And so look down at chapter 2, verse 1. What does he say? For I want you to know how great a struggle, agony, I have for you. Now we use agony in the, not the way the Greeks used it. When we think of agony, we think of 
going to the doctor's office and having a major surgery and then the recovery afterwards. That's agony. Agony in the Greek, in the Greek New Testament, was actually a gymnasium word. It was a a toiling gymnasium word, like martial arts training, where you get into a sparring match and it sometimes feels brutal and sweaty and you're grunting and you're groaning as you're going through this match or a wrestling match. Anybody ever wrestled in here? No, I was, I was thinking D was going to say, I did. Or a boxing match, going three, three rounds with Muhammad Ali. I mean, it's a training. It's like hand-to-hand combat training. If you ever took Krav Maga, you know what I'm talking about. It's that kind of thing behind the word agony. It's that kind of struggle. It's work that you would find going on in the gymnasium. And so part of the sufferings and the struggles that Paul is referring to here have to do with helping God's people to grow in maturity. Which means, chapter 2, verse 1, helping them to grow, to be knit together in love. That's hard work, my friends. It's easy for us to love our own kind. We always do. It's hard for us to love those kind. That's a lot of hard work to help God's people to learn to be knit together in love. And that's what he says. And he goes on in chapter 2. We'll talk more about chapter 2 next week. But reaching full assurance of understanding. You don't know how many Christians I've sat down with who don't have full assurance. It's a heavy load and it's a heavy, it's a hard work to try to work them through that. Full assurance of understanding and knowledge of the mystery of God. Part of the Gospel grind here that's part of the struggles and the sufferings. It has to do with bolstering Christians' resilience so that they're not being wooed by the Jesuses put on offer by the elemental spirits of the world with their philosophies and vain deceits. And another part of the stoil, of the stoil, of the toil, of the struggle is brought up when you get to chapter 4, verse 12, when Paul uses Epaphras, their minister, as a role model. He will say the same Greek word. Epaphras agonizes. He struggles for you in prayer. That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. And so when Paul is describing gospel grind here, he's not doing it to shame the Colossian Christians. and He's not calling them slackers. And he's also not putting himself out as some super saint, superstar, overachiever. It's just simply the explanation that being God's minister is work. And sometimes it includes tears and griefs and sweat. And so Paul's suffering for your sake, verse 24, in my flesh filling up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings, has everything to do with taking Jesus, taking the Lord Jesus Christ that he talked about in verses 13 through 23, taking Christ and all that Christ accomplished and working it and working him into this church so that they can get on with the gospel. Taking Jesus and what he accomplished and working him and it into that congregation. That's what he means by filling up the sufferings of Christ that were lacking. It's not that Christ's sufferings lacked and somehow Paul creates this whole bank account where he can 
throw in there deposits of great merit so that you can come in and, and withdraw that merit. That's not the point. The point is taking Jesus, what he did in 30 AD, what he accomplished in 30 AD, and taking that now into your situation and massaging it into your situation, working it into this church. It's the very thing our Lord Jesus talked about in John 14, verse 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he believes in me. The works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. His death and resurrection were in one geographical location, Palestine. What did the apostles do? They believed in him, and so they took what he did there, and they spread it all out there. Does that make sense? And so that's what he's referring to when he's talking about filling up the sufferings of Christ that are lacking. It's taking what Jesus did, who he is and what he did and working it out in this church here. That's the labor, that's the toil. But notice, thankfully, the end of verse 29, he's not doing it all alone. God is involved, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works in me. Now, Paul's point is very specific. It's actually about his own vocation as an apostle, but it's true. Whether you're an elder, or you're a deacon, or you're a Sunday school teacher, or you're working in women's ministry, or you're part of the needlework guild making these little, little boats, little miscarried babies, right? I mean, you're a part of that. Maybe you're a behind-the-scenes kind of person. It's part of that grind. All of it is part of that grind. It's a gospel work of helping to bring Jesus and what He has accomplished and working Him and working it, what He accomplished, into the lives of our fellow Christians, into the lives of these covenant children, into this fellowship, into this society of God's making. It's a gospel work. It's a labor. It's intensive because you're busy. We're always busy undoing, verse 21. Alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Every one of us already have our fingers there. And so this gospel grind, the work, is because it's already there. We're already there in verse 21, and we don't need to be there because of verse 22. He has reconciled through His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. That's the gospel grind. That's the sufferings and the struggle. Because all of us, by default, gravitate back to verse 21. Let me say it again, because somebody didn't believe me. I I could see it in your eyes. All of us, by default, gravitate back to verse 21. And the gospel work is working Jesus and the accomplishments of Jesus into the lives of individuals and the covenant community and so forth, so that we live in verse 22. And that he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. And so it's gospel work. To undo verse 21, we must need, those of you who like to bake, we must need verse 22 into the hearts and of the lives of men and women and girls and boys. But further, Paul describes this gospel grind 
as his stewardship of service, his stewardship of service. And that's verse 25, the first part of verse 25, the stewardship of service. Notice he says, of which, what's the of which? Well, it has to do with the church. That's what he said back in verse 24, his body, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. So let me break this statement down briefly. Notice that first off, Paul calls what he is doing diaconal work. That word minister is in the Greek diakonos, deacon. In fact, that's what he will say when you get back to verse 23, which we'll look at back in a minute. He still uses the same word. And the reason why I point this out, because you may remember, a few of you may remember, that I've written, and I've said this before, that all Christians are called to be deaconing. We're all called to be ministers. Deaconing. We're to be deaconing. So here, let me quote myself. This is really vain for a moment, but here you go. In my paper, which, by the way, I made copies of for you that's back in the foyer back there, Deaconing and Deacons, plenty of copies for you to have one, I said this, we are all, because of Jesus, deaconers, deaconing in God's world rescue operation. We're all because of Jesus. The Son of Man did not come to be deaconed unto, but to deacon. And to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. All of us are called to be deaconing. And so Paul calls what he's doing a diaconal work. Paul's deaconing work is all about God's world rescue operation. Notice how he says it back in verse 23. In fact, you'll notice a, a, an almost verbatim phrase. Verse 23, he says, uh, Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Being a minister of the church and being a minister of God's world rescue operation go together. They're synonymous. And that's what he's driving at there. But this deaconing work, notice, has accountability attached to it. He calls it a stewardship. Something, a stewardship that was entrusted to him he says, a stewardship from God. Now, what in the world is a stewardship? You know, that's where the plantation owner or the ranch owner may hire you to take care of all their cattle and make sure that they stay healthy and that the land is healthy and that everybody does their job so that the boss can make, can make some, um, can, can succeed so he can make a profit, right? So there's that sense. That's partly what a steward is. Does anybody remember the story in Luke 16? of the steward or the manager who gets the reputation of being a slacker, right? Not following through with his vocation. And so the boss man calls him onto the carpet and says, you're going to be held accountable. And he immediately goes and tightens everything down and gets, gets the boss man some profit and the, pro and the boss was happy. That's the stewardship. But that means there's an accountability. And that's what Paul is saying. That's why he's using that word steward. It's a stewardship from God. That means he's accountable to God. Now, I think that's hugely important. Because it's not something he generated. It's not something he created. It's not a ministry or a service that he concocted. It's one that he's accountable for, that was given to him to do, and he is being held accountable for it. So always be careful of someone who comes in and maybe they say, hey, 
I'm a brilliant person. They wouldn't say it that way, but I'm a brilliant person. You need to listen to me and follow me. That may not be a good deal. You know what I'm saying? Stewardship from God. But notice it's a stewardship for the benefit of others. The stewardship given to me by God for you. The stewardship given to me by God for you. Now God wanted these Christians and he wants us to flourish in what he has done through Jesus. And so Paul has been brought into guiding and helping us to flourish. That's the stewardship for you. That's how the apostle describes his part of the gospel grind. It's work, it's labor, it's toil, it's sweaty training like going to the gym every week. But it's for them. It's for their benefit. It's for their maturation. That's probably a good indication whether or not somebody might or might not be legit. Do they flex their power for themselves? Or do they flex their power for you? The stewardship given to me by God for you. My friends, it's a stewardship of service, and we need to see our engagement in the church's ministry in the same exact kind of way. Even Christian parents and grandparents, looking at how you're raising your kids as adults, you're raising them to be adults, that's part of that stewardship of service. Trust me, you're not raising those kids for your own benefit, right? You know what I mean? Like when they get sick, 2 o'clock in the morning, that's not for your benefit, you know what I'm saying? And when you clean them up, that's not for your benefit per se. That's really for their benefit. You see what I'm saying? And you're raising them to be adults, and it's a stewardship of service. But also, and I'm going to steal a line, I think it was from Mike Wells from Sunday school class a couple of weeks ago. For those of you who don't, may not have kids here anymore. You're the aunts and the uncles, the covenantal aunts and uncles. Did you say that? I think you said that. Just say yes. Thank you, thank you. Mike said that. The, the covenant aunts and uncles involved in a stewardship of service, helping the parents to raise these kids as Christian adults. Or even more. When we go visiting our folks that are in skilled nursing or in retirement communities, when we're heading off to Carnegie, whether it's going to be the, the trip in March or the, the one in, in July, or whether we're doing our own vacation Bible school or whatever, it should always be seen as a stewardship of service. Stewardship of service. And that's how Paul characterizes this gospel grind. But the central mission of this gospel grind is right there at the end of verse 25 through 27, and it's about showing off God's strategy. Showing off God's strategy. Notice how he puts it at verse, the end of verse 25 and verse 26. And listen to how the last statement in verse 25 and the first statement of verse 26 are synonymous. To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden. So first off, the strategy, I'm calling the mystery here strategy, I'll explain that in a minute. But the strategy of God is already contained in the word of God. To make the word of God fully known. When Paul uses that statement, he clearly is pointing to the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament scriptures. Which reminds us then that the Old Testament is God's word for God's people in every age. 
the word of, to make the word of God fully known, but it's specifically even more, or more emphatically, it's the, the, the Hebrew scriptures that are with Jesus as the centerpiece, which is exactly what Jesus taught his disciples in Luke 24. I've been teaching you this for three and a half years. And so Paul and the rest of the apostles being taught to read the Hebrew Scriptures with Jesus as a centerpiece. That's what Jesus said. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he goes on from there to explain what that strategy is. And so Paul says here, the Word of God, make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. The Hebrew Scriptures with Jesus as a centerpiece. Now the word mystery in the New Testament, the word mystery is not the idea of the spooky, the eerie, the uncanny, and the disturbing stuff. Though there is a fitting place to have that in mind, not in the Scriptures per se, but but in other situations. It means, much more closely, the strategy of God. The strategy that God had in place all along and it has now become clearer. The strategy that now becomes clear. It's kind of like watching Anna cook. Don't tell her I said this. Oh, she's here. Oh, no. Sometimes she'll start cooking something and I'll go, what are you doing? I'm not going to tell you. And she'll just start cooking and after a while... I can tell from the smell, it becomes clear. She had a strategy in mind the whole time, but it wasn't clear to me. And then it became clear, and yummy, yummy, yummy. Okay? So. But it's that same kind of thing. The strategy God has always had in place, and it is now becoming clearer. And so Paul's task was showing God's strategy. And what is God's strategy? Well, it's spelled out in verse 27. But before we read verse 27... If you want to catch the surprise of verse 27, you probably need to hear the verse 27. With the ears and prejudices of a highly tribal, ethnocentric, bigoted, chauvinistic people. With the ears of bigoted Romans who despised all of those unrefined non-Romans. With the bigoted ears of those Greeks who reviled those rubes and stupido non-Greeks, with the ears, the prejudiced ears of Jews who loathed all unwashed Jews. And all of a sudden, verse 27 becomes surprising. Listen to how he puts it. I'm going to start at the end of verse 26. To make, uh, um, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known what, how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Messiah in you, the hope of glory. Messiah in you, the hope of glory. The saints, in verse 26, are, at the least, are God's people, specifically his descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob people. The strategy has been revealed to them. And when you were reading Luke 24, did you notice what was being done there? 
descendants of Abraham, physical genetic descendants of Abraham, the 11 apostles, Jesus opened their mind to do what? To see the strategy of God. And what did the strategy of God include? The proclamation of repentance and forgiveness of sins to be proclaimed to all the what? The nations, the Gentiles. And so it was revealed to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Messiah in you, the hope of glory. Here's the surprising part of the strategy, especially especially if you were listening with the ears of bigoted Jews of the day. That Israel's Messiah wants non-Israelites. That Israel's Messiah loves non-Israelites. That Israel's Messiah dwells in non-Israelites, which is Messiah in you, the hope of glory. Now Paul will develop this mystery, this strategy of God more, a little bit more in detail in chapters 2 through 3, but with a little bit of thought. You can see how this is gospel grind. It's work. Because it went against and it goes against in our day. Most of the social prejudices, collective predispositions, and ethnic discriminations on display, both in that day and in our day. Even the kind of prejudices and dispositions and discriminations that Jackie Robinson faced in 1947. Jews would have been appalled, for example. Jews would have been appalled at this mystery of God being declared. In fact... Go read the book of Acts. They were appalled. To the point of violence, rioting in the streets, grabbing Paul, dragging him out the street, and having him stoned to death. They were disgusted with this mystery. Oh, but not them alone. Gentiles. Think of this. Gentiles, non-Jews, would have been scandalized by this gospel mystery being proclaimed Because it says to them they must submit to a Jew. They must submit to a Jew. The Jew who died for the sins of his people and rose again on the third day and has ascended to heaven and sits at the Father's right hand who is King of kings and Lord of lords. That would have scandalized most Gentiles. Oh, and to make it even worse, it would have... It would have just outraged Romans because that Jew that you want me to submit to was treated as a guilty criminal with our own court system. I mean, can you, can you pick up some of this? It would have been shocking to their system. They would have been disdainful of becoming, of needing to become and having to become adopted descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What, you mean salvation and being put on God's good side? means I've, I'm, I've got to be brought into... The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Yes. They would have been disgusted with the idea that they now needed to enter the story, the long story of the backwoods, backwater, backwards people of Judea to become God's people. It would have blown their circuits, and it did over and over again. The grind of gospel grind is to help people get off their high horse. My dad used to say that to me more than once. I want you to know. 
Boy, get off your high horse. Usually when I was full of spit and vinegar and sauntering around and thinking too highly of myself, right? But that's part of the gospel grind is helping people get off their high horse and to recognize what God has been doing all along and it's in this way. And that requires humility. It requires that we come to see where we came from, verse 21. Jews, Romans, Greeks, Gentiles, Americans, Oklahomans, all of us alienated, hostile to God, doing evil deeds, no hope, doomed, damned. To see where we all came from, the ship is sinking and we're all in it. So that we can come to appreciate what God has done and what he's, where he's taking us. And he is now reconciled through his body of flesh by death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. My friends, if we don't get that, this was the problem in Colossae, if we don't get what that means, if we don't get it and it doesn't get us, then we become vulnerable. We become vulnerable to, for looking for love in all the wrong places, to quote the country and western song. We become prone to looking for a better Jesus. We become prone for looking for a better Jesus, a Jesus who will soothe our ethnic sensibilities, that will bolster our social prejudices, that will support our cultural arrogances. And that's a big part of the trouble you'll see being dealt with in chapters 2 and 3. Gospel grind is an uphill struggle, if you will, of being faithful to Jesus and helping other believers to be faithful to Jesus. Which Jesus? The one of chapter 1, verses 13 through 23. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, making peace, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The gospel grind is being faithful to this Jesus, holding this Jesus, and helping other brothers and sisters to hold this Jesus. First, my friends, we need to begin to recognize that it takes work, valuable work, to minister the gospel to other people and to one another. Some days it feels like a martial arts sparring contest because it goes against so many of our personal and public intuitions. So therefore we need to grow in our recognition. That our gospel work is work. It's a legitimate work. It's real work. 
That means we can't expect, be expecting it to be a holiday or a leisurely stroll through the woods. But even more, we must come to see that it's work because the gospel goes against so many of our personal and public prejudices and bigotries. God's strategy has been moving along for some time and moving toward that climactic moment when in our hymn, which we didn't sing today, we sing it the other day, when in one of our hymns it says, Jesus who died will be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. And when we are drawn into God's storied strategy by grace, it can quickly upset our social senses of rights and wrongs, turning our upside-down world right side up, and that makes heads spin. I've had vertigo. I've told you that before, right? And when you got vertigo, you go down. I mean, nothing fits, nothing works, and then somebody has the audacity to try to set you up straight, and you're not straight. You're not straight from the inside out, and sometimes it all comes out. And here comes our Lord Jesus, and he takes our upside-down world, and he's turning it right side up, and everybody's got vertigo. That's why it's work. And one place this happens is bringing us to come to accept those other people. The them, those who are being also brought into God's storied strategy by grace. By not being disdainful or disgusted with those other people. But, as Paul will go on to say in chapter 2, knit together in love. But finally, by God's grace, we come to and we come through this Jesus. It means we then must turn away and we do turn away. We, we struggle with this but we fight, and we fight this way. We turn away from looking for a better Jesus. We turn away from looking for those Jesuses that are out in the marketplace, that are being put on the shelves for us to to purchase and buy into. Those Jesuses who soothe our ethnic sensibilities and bolster our social prejudices and support our cultural arrogances. We turn away from them. I remember the old country and western song. Seems I'm on a kick for country and western. I don't care if it rains or freezes long as I got that plastic Jesus sitting on the dashboard of my car. Plastic Jesuses are on sale all over the place. And having this Jesus, we can turn away from those imitation Jesuses. We come to rejoice that this real Jesus ain't no pygmy Jesus. But instead, he is the preeminent Jesus who took us, think of it, who took us, who were alienated and hostile mind doing evil deeds. And what did he do? What could he have done? Justice. What did he do? Reconciled us in his body of flesh by death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's why Paul will come to verse chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, why he will say it and why you need to have it in your hearts. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for the work, the work you have given us to do as Christians. Making us all deaconers, deaconing. Forgive us for the times that we hunker down into ourselves and only serve just ourselves. May we be captured again by who you are and what you have done for us in Jesus. And may it cause us to open up to be of service to others. We ask you, Lord, that you would continue to keep us from those plastic Jesuses on the cell. Knit us so closely together in love around Jesus Christ. That the world, even when it persecutes us, will finally say, behold how those Christians love one another. And may we be about proclaiming and declaring the mystery of God. Your mystery at work amongst the Gentiles. Messiah in you, the hope of glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.